Well, let's enjoy the Lord through the worship of his word this morning, uh, worship through his word today. I'm going to draw your attention, first of all, though, church family, to the screen. Summertime songs at IBC hanging out in the Psalms. Now, we haven't been able to do that very much here this summer. Uh, And apparently the Lord had other thoughts for us over the last couple of weeks, which took us away from this focus that we had. But today we get to return to the book of Psalms together, sitting literally at the center of our Bibles. The book of Psalms can rightly be called the hymn book of the Old Testament, which then by extension makes the book of Psalms the church's first songbook, if you want to think of that. In that way, Psalms is a collection of 150 songs that God has gifted to us by his spirit to be sung or read at any time, in any setting, in any situation or circumstance that the human heart might find itself in. It is a treasure for us who call our God our God. Now, I can tell you're already making your way to the book of Psalms. Find your way, if you haven't already, to the 139th Psalm this morning, because that's where we're going to hang out today, Psalm 139. If you need a Bible today, just raise your hand. We'll be glad to share a copy of God's Word with you, just in case you got away without that this morning. Psalm 139, there's a note page in your bulletin. If you don't know the drill yet here at IBC, we usually supply you with a note page to help kind of carry things forward from what we share together on a morning. And then if you wouldn't mind, if that cell phone isn't silenced, could you do that as well? But that would not interrupt our time. I'm going to ask you to stand as I would like to read the 139th for us in its entirety. We'll stand in the honor as we honor the word. And as Sammy mentioned a moment ago, it has this little superscription to the choir master, to the director of music. A psalm, a song of David, referring to King David. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake. And I'm still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Oh, men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Amen and amen. Would you join me as I pray? 
Oh, Father God, what an amazing song. And what an amazing prayer at the end of this song. Search us, oh God. Search us in these moments together. For your glory and our good, I ask it. In Jesus' strong name. And all God's people said, amen and amen. You can be seated, church family. Kids are often the best at praying simple, sincere, unencumbered prayers. A while back, I was given a list of children's prayers that were overheard either by parents or perhaps by Sunday school teachers, and then these were collected, and, and someone passed these along to me. And so here are just a few samples of authentic, unmeasured, honest petitions put to God by children. From Jennifer, dear God, thank you for the baby brother, but what I asked for was a puppy. I never asked for anything before. You can look it up. (laughs) Or Amanda, dear God, please put another holiday between Christmas and Easter. There's nothing good there right now. (laughs) How about Jason? Dear Mr. God, got the formality there. I wish you would not make it so easy for people to come apart. I had to have three stitches and a shot. (laughs) It's simple and honest. And how about Jenny? Dear God, is it true my daddy won't be in heaven if he uses his golf words in the house? That's what mommy says. (laughs) And maybe my favorite from Taylor. Dear God. I'm doing the best I can. Really? I'm doing the best I can. Yeah. Speaking of unmeasured honesty is a moment related by a pastor. It seems his five-year-old daughter had noticed that he always paused and silently bowed his head for a moment at the pulpit before he began to deliver his message. And One day she asked him why that was the case. And and he says, well, honey, uh, proud that his daughter was noticing this about his preaching. I'm asking the Lord in that moment to help me preach a good sermon. There was this pause. And then, Daddy, how come he doesn't answer your prayer? (laughs) Yeah, kind of an ouch, especially, yeah, I can, re- I can really relate to that one, yeah. Psalm 139, one of the best known of all of the psalms, of the 150 psalms, it ends with a prayer, church family, a short, simple, unencumbered, totally honest prayer from a God-seeking heart. As our Bibles are open to Psalm 139, they're open to one of King David's best-known songs, one that ends with him asking God to examine his life, ruthlessly examine his life, affirming the right that God finds and exposing the wrong that God finds. David's desire is that if God is pleased to answer this prayer, he will be consistently living the kind of life that is God-honoring real and difference-making. That's what he believes as he asks this of God. Search me. Oh, God, search me and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there is any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. As I read the opening words of verse 23, there's a rather graphic image that Seems to want to come into my mind repeatedly. I have a younger brother, a year and a half younger than myself. And he and my brother-in-law both had open heart surgery within this last year. And when they do this type of surgery, I kind of looked it up to see, well, what's going to be involved with that? The surgeon uses a stainless steel device that I'm sure has a very technical name. And what this device does is it essentially, once the sternum has been cut, it goes in there and it just 
it just expands your chest cavity open so that the doctor can see everything and do everything that he wants to do. David is praying in verses 23 and 24 that God will do exactly that with his heart on a spiritual level. The same thing that the surgeon would do on a physical level. Lord, take your expander, your your chest expander, your heart expander, open me up, search me, examine me, plumb my thoughts, test my motives, find anything and everything that is, is right in my heart and affirm that to me and then expose and reveal and correct everything that you would find offensive residing in my heart. And then lead me. Lead me in the way that will really last. The way that will will have meaning and matter for you because that means it will be good for me. What an honest prayer. It's an amazing prayer, church family. Absolutely amazing. It's a daring prayer, I would suggest. It's not a safe prayer. Would you agree with that? This isn't a safe prayer. You're not playing it safe if you actually pray this prayer. It's scary. It's it's humbling. It, it, It exposes you and makes you vulnerable. It's an absolutely right on prayer. It reveals volumes, I would say, about the one who prays it authentically, what they care about, what's important to them, what they really value, what they really want in their life. And because the Holy Spirit has preserved this prayer for us, it reveals to us volumes about what God cares about, what God values, what he wants for us, what he wants in us. And I could ask you this morning, is this a prayer that you are prepared to pray? Is this a prayer that you would pray? Is this a prayer I am prepared to pray? Now, I'm going to ask you not to answer that question just yet. Because this is where David gets to by the end of his song. But how does he get to verses 23 and 24? Why does he get to these two verses? What would lead David to invite God to pry open his heart, the deepest recesses of his heart, his being, take inventory of all that he finds, affirm the good, pull out the sinful bad, and replace it with the God-honoring good. What engenders that level of trust within David that he would welcome, he would invite God to do this in him and for him? What would create that level of trust, that that level of confidence that he would be able to make those requests that he makes in verse 23 and 24? Well, the answer to that question is woven into the verses that come before it. Time spent reflecting upon, meditating upon, thinking about, and singing out the truth about God for all of those verses that come before. This is what brings David to the place where he can pray as he prays. Only after reflecting on his God, his character, his person, his nature, and doing that for an extended period, not in a passing way, but with some detail, only then after doing that does David have this no reservation about praying, search me. This daring prayer, search me, O God, search me out. What David does in the first 18 verses of Psalm 139 is call to mind the omni-attributes of God. Omni. From the Latin word omnis, it means what? Do you know what it means? Omnis means all simply means all. There are certain aspects of God's person, certain 
attributes of God that are easiest to convey using this this little four-letter prefix, omni. Let me show you what I mean by that. For example, God is omniscient. What does that mean, church? That God is all-knowing, right? All-knowing. He's omniscient. There's nothing that he does not know. We also say within our church family and our, our, our understanding of Bible and theology and the person of God, we say that God is omnipresent. Omnipresent. What does that mean? All present. That means everywhere. God present everywhere, not only where we are, but also where we're going to be next. And also where we aren't in the moment. Omnipotent. All what? All powerful. Nothing greater, nothing stronger than God. Omnipotent. And then omni-loving. Maybe you haven't heard that one before. Omni-loving. God not only loves, but he is infinite love. 1 John 4, 8 declares this without any reservation. God is what? He's love. He's all love. Infinite love. Our awareness that God possesses these attributes is part of what gives us such great confidence in coming to him. Trusting our lives to him because God is these things. David will not hesitate to pray. Search me, know me, cleanse me, lead me, Lord, into your everlasting way. He doesn't just pray that out of, out of space, uh, just kind of grabs that, that prayer and lays it out there. No, it's coming from somewhere. It's coming from these truths. It's around these omni-attributes that David constructs for life-defining convictions, convictions that influence everything that he thinks about and everything that he does. And I've put those down on the, the bottom half of your note page there on the front. We'll put these up on the screen for you as well. Four life-defining convictions about God. Because David's God is omniscient, he's all-knowing, David can say with certainty, Lord, you know me better than anyone else ever will. And he'll sing about that for six verses, one through six. And he is omnipresent. God is everywhere present all of the time. And David can say, Lord, you are nearer to me than anyone else will ever be. And he sings about that in verses seven through twelve. And since God is omnipotent, supremely powerful and without limits at all, David can say, Lord, you know how I'm put together better than anyone else could ever know. And he'll sing about that in verses 13 to 16. And because you are omni-loving, I'm never out of your thoughts. Lord, you think about me more than anyone else possibly can. Verses 17 and 18. As a way of worshiping the Lord this morning, let's, let's unpack each one of these convictions that David sings about. Let's start with the first one. God is omniscient. Lord, you know me better than anyone else ever will. Verse 1. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and what? Known me. You know When I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my paths and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. When you took your seat this morning here at the Bible church, he knew which seat you were going to sit in. I actually know what seat you're going to sit in. Most of the time, too, <laughs> which means I know when you're not here. <laughs> but I'm not, I'm not omniscient, right? I'm not. When this service is over and you get up, he already knows who you're going to speak to. And he knows what you're going to say. Verse 4, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You know everything I'm going to say before I say it. And, and if you join your friends for lunch after service today, God already knows what you're going to order and how much you're going to tip. 
He knows the number of steps that you're going to take today. Job chapter 14, verse 16 says that. And, and Jesus says that, that God knows the number of hairs on your head. Matthew chapter 10, verse 30. That is intimate knowledge, isn't it? Verse 5, you hem me in behind and before, or to say it another way, Lord, what you know precedes me and it comes after me. And you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too high. I can't take it in. David says, Lord, you know me better than anyone else will ever know me. No one knows me like you. Now, it's hard to grasp the implications of that truth. That God is omniscient. A.W. Tozer, a pastor, writing in the middle of the last century, helped me when he wrote in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, the following, which I have have reproduced for you on the back side of your bulletin, thinking that some of you might ask for this a little later. I'm just going to be ahead of the curve. I've provided it for you. We're going to put it on the screen. But here's here's some reflections from A.W. Tozer. God cannot learn. You know, if you ever wondered, is there something God cannot do? Well, he can't learn. Why? Because he knows it all, right? God Could God at any time or in any manner receive into his mind knowledge that he did not possess and had not possessed from eternity, he would be imperfect and less than himself. God knows instantly and effortlessly all matter and all matters, all mind and every mind, all spirit and all spirits, all being and every being. All creaturehood and all creatures, every power and all powers, all law and every law, all relations, all causes, all thoughts, all mysteries, all enigmas, all feeling, all desires, every unuttered secret, all thrones and dominions, all personalities, all things visible and invisible in heaven and in earth, motion, space, time, life, death, good, evil, heaven and hell. Because God knows all things perfectly, he knows no thing better than any other thing, but all things equally well. He never discovers anything. He is never surprised and never amazed. He never wonders about anything, nor, except when drawing people out for their own good, does he seek information or ask questions. There's a lot there. In short, there's absolutely nothing that God does not know. He is omniscient. Someone has said, you will never win if you play him at trivial pursuit. (laughs) That is so true. (laughs) And for the one who thinks today that they harbor secret sin that nobody knows about, God knows. He knows every sin ever committed by anyone anywhere in the world at any time. It's all known. There are no secrets with him. And this is so why we need a Savior, yes? Because God knows us. He knows us. Some might try to run from this attribute. Many try to run from this attribute. But not David. David sings about it. He shelters himself in this truth. Lord, you know me better than anyone else ever will. Therefore, why would I look to anyone else but you? You know me. You know what's going on inside of me, what I'm feeling, what I can handle, what I need, what is best for me. You are my all-knowing God, and I'm glad to know that you know. Maybe this is the attribute of your God that you need to take refuge in today, brother, sister. Especially if the horizon of your life is clouded today. It's, 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 just, it's just nothing but uncertainty for you. Maybe this is the attribute of God that you need to, to just rest in. Meditate upon David's words here. And maybe Tozer's reflections to shore up a a weary faith today. Your God knows. 
There's a second attribute of God that David sings about, verses 7 through 12. His God is nearer to him than anyone else will ever be. Omnipresent. God is everywhere at the same time. He's within time, yet he's outside of time. There's no place where he is not. His complete person everywhere, wherever you are and wherever you are not, God is there. Now, you and I would fry a few synapses in our brains if we really tease that out for very long. It's too, it's too much. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? Verse 7. It's a rhetorical question. It has only one answer. What, what's the answer? Nowhere. There's nowhere I can go and you're not there already. If I ascend to heaven, well, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, the place of the dead, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning, that is, if I go east as far as I can go, or I dwell in the uttermost part of the sea, that's a reference to to going as far west as you could possibly go, even there your hand shall lead me, your right hand shall hold me. God, you are never not there. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for the darkness is as light with you. Verses 11 and 12 remind me of playing hide and seek with my children when they were very little. That's going back a ways, but I still remember this. I had a a very special memory of um, our, our little daughter, Amy. She was just this tiny little thing. And we're in the living room of the house. And, and I said, Amy, let's, let's play hide and seek. And you go hide. And what does Amy do? She, 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 she gets down like this. She closes her eyes. And she does this. And for this, this constitutes hiding. Right? I don't know of any small children that don't do this. You probably have this very same memory as a parent. And, and, and it was dark to her, right, which meant she couldn't be seen. And yet she was in the light for me. And that's the way it is with God with us. When we think we're surrounded by what feels like this thick, impenetrable darkness, there are dark circumstances in the present to say nothing about what the future is and, and it's completely indiscernible in the future. And, and, and yet God sees all of this perfectly clearly. It's like daylight to him. He is never, ever not there in your life, in my life. And it's never, ever dark to him. And St. David finds tremendous solace in that truth. And so can we. Lord, you know me better than anyone else ever will. You're nearer to me than anyone else will ever be. Therefore, I invite you to search me out. Do you follow? You see what he's doing? But David not, not, doesn't stop there. Bringing us to verses 13 to 16, his, his third life-defining conviction is that God is omnipotent. That is, he has limitless power, which is, of course, on continual display as we look at creation. But David wants to reflect upon the omnipotent power of God by going straight to the pinnacle of his creative expression. His creation of that one creature that is unique from all other creatures in the world, the image bearer of God. That's where he wants to go. David wants to praise God for his omnipotence as he sees God's power reflected in the creation of himself and all the rest of humankind. So thanks to the technology of our day, Here is a picture, church family, of a human being implanted on the wall of the uterus in the very first days of pregnancy. It's amazing. It's awe-creating to reflect on the fact that there was a time when this was you and this was me. This is 
what every person on our planet looked like once. This was the raw clay that God, as the omnipotent master sculptor, worked upon in the womb. He makes the clay, and then he makes us from that. He molds us. Verse 13, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. God, you made me. You know how I'm put together better than anyone else could ever know. I praise you, for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in the secret place, intricately woven in the depths of the earth a word picture for the womb. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. David is speaking in these verses about his unique individuality. The one of a kind, never seen before, and never to be seen again combination of a mother and father's chromosomes. God was there weaving these chromosomes into this precise combination and sequence that would ultimately make you, you, and me, me. No one else like us. Someone has asked, what artist would do his greatest work in the dark? Well, I know one. His name is God, omnipotent God. But remember that the darkness is what to God? It's light, right? And in the darkness of the womb, he made us. He knows absolutely everything there is to know about us physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, because he is the one who made us. And David knows that he is the deliberate outworking of God's omnipotent will. He knows this. And it blows him away. He's not an accident. He didn't crawl out of a primordial pool. He is the master work of the God of the universe. So much so are you and I the planned creations of God that David will actually say in verse 16 that every day of his life was already defined by God before he was even born. The same is true for you and me, isn't it? Every breath already defined by our God. Now that's omnipotent control. The Lord sovereignly ordains our entrance into this world and he sovereignly ordains our exit. Do you believe it? It's true. It's true. I cannot read verse 16 without recalling the death of a very dear member of the Bible Church family. This was several years ago. A few of you are still a part of our church family from those days. This gentleman's name was Marty Lynn. One of my last visits to see Marty, now bedridden, quite weak, in his home. As I was leaving his house, Marty said, Tim. And I turned, and he was lying on a hospital bed in in the den, he smiled at me and he quoted from memory verse 16. And he said, all the days ordained for me were written in his book before one of them came to be. There was no fear, no fear of death. The Lord called him home just a few days later. God knows exactly how he's put us together and how many days we're going to have And David can say, Lord, because I know that's true, I invite you to search me. You have every right to search me. And then David's fourth conviction, Lord, you think about me more than anyone else can possibly think about me. Verse 17, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake. And I'm still with you. David says, Lord, there's nobody who thinks about me like you think about me. There's no one who takes an interest in me like you do. 
You're never not thinking about me. Have you ever pondered that? That God is never not thinking about you? You ever pondered that? In this world right now, there are 7.7 billion souls. God is thinking about every one of them. Every single one of them. The fastest computer is in the world. All of them synced together cannot keep up with him as he thinks about you. Do you know that that there are 7,700,000 grains of sand in a single little cup, measuring cup? 7 million grains of sand. You say, how do you know? I don't know. That's internet stuff. I just, I just, just Googled it. How many grains of sand in a cup? 7,700,000 grains. God's thoughts outnumber the grains of sand, not in a cup, but in all of the beaches on all of the earth. He has more thoughts of you than the grains of sand. Can you get your head around that? No. All of us think about the things we love, and this is why this is such a beautiful thought here. What David is really saying when he talks about grains of sand and the thoughts of God, you see, we we think about the things we love, don't we? And we think most about the things that we love the most. What we don't care about doesn't get much of our attention. On the other hand, what, what we really, really care about, well, 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 that we really, really love. It gets a lot of our energy. Verses 17 and 18 tell us in the most powerful way that David can come up with that God cares about us. And it translates to love, an infinite love. Because he thinks so much about us. We must be loved by him. So infinitely much. He cares about you. He cares about me on a scale, on a level, to a degree and to a depth that we will never fully comprehend. We will never exhaust the love of God. The love of God. What did it do? Church family, it moved God. To send his sinless son, Jesus, to us. That's that's the most beautiful expression of the love of God we will ever know. Moved God to send his own son, sinless son, to pay a sin debt that he did not have by becoming sin for us. And God nails him to a cross so that that we can be free of the guilt and the penalty of of our sin and be reunited with this God who loves us so much. David in his day did not know about this. He was stuck with grains of sand to speak of God's love. We have God's son. And we have this cross, don't we? The ultimate expression of the love of God to you and me. Lord, you know me better than anyone else ever will. You are nearer to me than anyone else will ever be. You made me exactly the way you wanted me to be, and you think about me more than anyone else possibly can. And it is these these four convictions that David holds that then result in two life-directing conclusions. If you flip your note page over, First, because his God is all-knowing, always present, all-powerful, and all-loving, David says, Lord, (laughs) I only ever want to be on your side. I only ever want to be on your side. That's his first life-directing conclusion. To be on the side that is opposed to his all-in-all God would be devastating to David. So here's how he expresses this, and I dare say he says this a little bit differently than you would, right? 
Verse 19, oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Oh, men of bloodshed, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. And we read those words and we say, is that really in the Bible? It really is. But it's in our Bibles a thousand years before Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for them. So here's what I would urge us to do with this church family. Try not to let David's choice of of raw, visceral words cause you to miss his heart here. He has just spent 18 verses of his song with some of his God's most incredible attributes. However, sooner or later, he does have to step back into the realities of his sinful fallen world. And he's trying to say to God, as powerfully as he knows how, that his love and his loyalty are 100% with his God. He wants no part of the sin of his world. He doesn't want any part of those things that are opposed to his God. And this is how he communicates it. It sounds raw and rough to us. But see his heart. Hear his heart. We wouldn't say it the way David says it. But we want what David wants, don't we? Don't we want what he wants? David is so taken with the greatness of his omni-God that he only wants to, to champion God in his fallen world. He wants no part of evil, no partnership with those who aggressively defy his God. That's what he's saying. Behind David's hard edge here, if you listen, are the words, Lord, I only ever want to be on your side. Just your side. Reminds me of the time when one of the northern generals in the Civil War, seeking to reassure the president, President Lincoln, said, don't worry, sir. God is on our side. And Lincoln's reply was perfect. It was in the spirit of David's words. Sir, my concern is not whether God is on our side. My greatest concern is to be on God's side. For God is always right. The goal for us must never be, church family, to try and get all-knowing, all-present, all-powerful, all-loving God to join our side. must never be our goal. Never to try to get him to align with our cause. The goal is for us to make sure we're always on his side, right? And align with his cause. And for us, that's made possible through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And an unshakable commitment to God's word. That's how we stay on God's side. And then the second conclusion David draws from the four convictions he holds is this. Even though he wants very much to give sin and evil a wide berth, he nevertheless has a sin nature and sin resides within him. And so his second conclusion is this. Lord, I invite you to continually... Examine my life, affirm the right, reveal the wrong, and help me to choose your way always. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me. Know my thoughts. See if there is any grievous way in me and lead me in the the way everlasting. David thinks, Lord, you know me. You're with me, you made me, and you love me infinitely. Who better than you to ask this request of, I want to be at the center of your will because that will be life at its best. So search me, know me, test me, expose the sin in me, lead me. And I would just put to you, church family, this is such a God-honoring, self-humbling, beautiful expression of submission to the Lord. There's no hiding here. There's no self-protection. There's no, no attempt to rationalize or to defend. My loving Father, you know it all anyway. Show me the way. How simple, how right on, 
Search me. Know me. Test me. Purify me. Lead me. Now earlier, I asked you to defer answering the question, would you be willing to pray this amazing, daring prayer? Well, I won't ask you to put that answer off anymore. Would you be willing to ask God to open you up, search you, test you, expose what is wrong, affirm what is right, knowing that his way will be best? Are you willing to pray that prayer? Well, let me take it a step further and ask, would you be willing to pray that prayer for 21 days straight? Every day, start your day with this prayer. Would you be willing to do that? Yeah? Really? 21 days. Why 21 days? Well, it's been observed that it takes 21 days of repeated action to form a habit. Why don't we put that to the test? For 21 days, let's you and I commit to pray verses 23 and 24. Without fail, start our day with this prayer. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That is a daring prayer. But you've said you'll do it. Let's pray in this moment. Father, you've heard us. You've heard us say we will do it. Now we would ask you to enable us to do this to pray this prayer. How beautiful you are, oh God. How beautiful you are. We see you in your omniscience, your omnipresence, your omnipotence, and your love, your omni-love. And it just brings us to this place where we can fully trust you to open up our hearts and show us what's there. How we love you but we only love you because you loved us first. And the most beautiful expression of that love is the person of Jesus given to us to pay our sin debt that we could never pay. And it is a joy and an honor to conclude our time together this morning in worship by remembering you at the table of remembrance, to remember what you've done for us, Heavenly Father, to remember Jesus, his death on the cross. This is a sacred moment. It's a gift you have given to us, the bread and the cup. May we honor you with hearts that are right as we come to your table. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. So, church family, we're going to now draw to the table together. And this table belongs to anyone here in this room this morning who knows Jesus Christ in a personal saving way you have stopped trusting in yourself you've said i'm a sinner i need a savior and jesus is my savior whenever that happened for you as a small child or as an adult it's happened if that hasn't happened for you the the, the table would be meaningless for you it would not be it would not be time for you to to share in this portion of our time today is the day when you need to know jesus and ask him into your life but if that has happened in your life then this table is yours I'm going to invite those who are going to help to serve you this morning if they would come forward. And as they distribute the bread and the cup, I would just ask you to receive the elements and hold them together until we can, can pray. And uh, we'll share those elements together. So in this moment, Sammy's going to play instrumentally. It gives you a chance to draw before your Heavenly Father. Talk to Him. Maybe even pray. Psalm 139, 23 and 24. Talk to him. I am so glad in my heart to be able to share this table together with you, my friends and church family. We said in a, a little bit ago that our God loves us with this infinite love. A love that outnumbers the grains of sand in all the world. 
his thoughts of us, an expression of his love for us. And he made that love real when he sent Jesus. Jesus came to pay the debt that he did not owe so that we could have the life that we did not deserve. Jesus gathered with his disciples on the night before he was crucified and he shared a meal with them. And at that meal, he took the bread that was on the table and he blessed it. He says, this is going to be a way for you to remember my body, which will bear the wrath of God in your place. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Lord Jesus, every blow that you received was meant for us. What love you have for us that you would bear that, that wrath of God meant for us that you would take that upon yourself. How we, how we rejoice in our, our knowledge of that truth. Thank you for your body given for us. And all God's people said, Jesus took the cup that was also on the table and he blessed it, turned it into a way for you and I to remember his blood, which would be shed for us. Scripture says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Jesus is the last great one and only sacrifice for sin. His blood covers our sin debt. Jesus said, this is the new covenant. Life in me. Drink this in remembrance of me. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Heavenly Father. Thank you, Lord Jesus. The one who made the love of, our, of, of the Father real to us. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for taking the blinders off of our eyes, giving us a new heart, enabling us to believe these marvelous eternity-changing truths. For the one who has yet settled there, their understanding of who you are, Jesus, we pray that you would make yourself clear to that one who might be with us today who has yet to give their life to you. How we love you, but only because you loved us first. And we all say together, amen and amen.